The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. I'm your host, Jackson, and in today's episode, I'm speaking to SC or Sam Gwynn, all about his brand new book, His Majesty's Airship, The Life and Tragic Death of the World's Largest Flying Machine. Now, in this episode, Sam details to us the early life and early experience of those building and flying early airships, the war effort and where the history of these airships come from, and then he lets us know about the life of the R101, which is what his book is all about. Now, if you enjoy the content that we create here at History of Jackson, please do consider subscribing with History of Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts or supporting us through the Buy Me A Coffee profile in the description below. Now, without further ado, I'll leave you with Sam. So hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. Today we're talking to historian and author S.C. Gwynn or Sam, as we have today, and about his brand new book with One World Publications, His Majesty's Airship, The Life and Tragic Death of the World's Largest Flying Machine. Now, I really, really enjoyed reading Sam's book, and I know you guys are going to enjoy listening to him talk all about it. So how are you doing, Sam? Oh, I'm doing just fine. I'm down here in Texas where it's finally cool, so people are happy. People are actually going outside, which is an interesting concept. I mean, it must be nice to finally get outside and not not in that unbearable heat. <laughs> I really, it was it was 107 every day here for several months, you know, 105, 107 every day. And, uh, you know... That it, it, Texas is not exactly cool, you know, in, in the same way that, you know, in Great Britain, it, it's not exactly dry, but <clears throat> there are extremes, you know. So anyway, we're good. I'm fairly grateful for our comparatively mild summer now. So. <laughs> yes. So I want to ask you a first question. I ask all the guests here on the podcast, what was the, what was the inspiration behind this book? Well, let's see. So uh, it really was... Uh, you know, it really was a history. Uh, I don't know if you know the, the British historian, the wonderful British historian, James Morris, who became Jan Morris later, um, a, a bit of a generation back. So you may not know him uh, or I guess her, as she would prefer to be, as she would have preferred to be known then. But I mean, James Morris, under his name, wrote a a, uh, a trilogy, a history, a three-part uh, history of the British Empire uh, called Pax Britannica. Uh, that was just flat brilliant. I mean, he just knocks me down. He's so good. And uh, and he the third part of that was something called Farewell the Trumpets. So we're in the third the, 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 when the empire starts to decline. You know, Churchill's in this part of the book and the empire is declining and we get to India and we get to all the things that happened in the 20th century. And there was two pages in this book on this airship called the R101 that was somehow kind of uh, it was this tremendous uh tremendously ambitious attempt to restore Britain to what could not be restored, which was the great old days of the Victorian empire, but they tried and they failed and, and there was this crash and it was all round up in the decline of the empire. And I thought, wow, what a great, Oh God, you know, what a, an idea. And so I do it all, you know, highly trained historians do as I Googled it to see who had uh, who had done this? How, how many books had been done in the R101? You know, I mean, and it, it just so, one, the one that had been done by 
Peter Maysfield in 1980 was pretty much it. And he really wasn't a professional writer. He was like an airline executive at that point. And uh, the other books were, were, were uh, not significant to me. So I had, I had this, what I thought was a great idea and, and a, a clear field to, on which to play. So um, every once in a while, that's where, I, you know, not that many of my ideas have come that, you know, where it's just come literally out of a paragraph or somewhere. And in this case, in a book that most people aren't reading anymore or else everyone would have done this already. So, but anyway. I like how you got that little spark of creativity just from that. Yeah. I think that's, I oh, think it that's just, really nice. It was, and, then, and, then, and then the absolute joy of knowing that there hadn't been 10 books about it or five books about it. Um, it was it was largely forgotten. I think it's been overwritten, you know, by, well, Lindbergh on the one hand and then the Hindenburg on the other. So, Yeah, I certainly agree that it's been overshadowed by other airships and their stories. But you start this book off by discussing this really interesting character, and that's, and that's Lord Thompson of, of Cardington. How important is he then in this history and in the creation of the R101? So my book is about really an, an airship. It's 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 building and it's and its ultimate doom. But the guy who drove it to that was Lord Christopher Birdwood Thompson, as you say, and Thompson of Cardington, which is interesting. He he when he was made a lord by Ramsay MacDonald, he could have chosen you know the way British lords can choose. You can be Kitchener of Khartoum if you want to, right? Which Kitchener chose. Um, and so, you know, uh, Thompson could have been anything. He chose Cardington is a gritty little industrial suburb of Bedford where the British airships were built. And that's what he wanted to be Lord of. Anyway, a long, a long story short here, I guess I'll try to be as short as I can. Thompson was the driving force behind this a scheme in the 1920s called the Imperial Airship Scheme. And the idea was to um, was they were going to take these giant airships, seven eight hundred foot long airships. They were going to imbue them with British technology and do one better than the Germans who had invented the Zeppelins before. And they were going to populate the world with these airships. And why would you want to do that? The reason you would is because coming out of World War One, Great Britain held the greatest empire ever known to history. Twenty five percent of the world was British, right? And and they had taken, at, at the end of the war, they had taken a bunch of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East, you know, the, the German holdings in, in Asia and Africa. I mean, there was this suddenly, this absolutely gigantic world, much of which was really long way away from the rest of it. For example, by Sydney to London by boat was, you know, almost a month. Karachi, which was then in India to London by boat, you know, was a, whatever, almost two weeks. And by means of these airships, they were going to re radically reduce the size of their empire in terms of time. You know, you would be 11 days instead of a month. It would be a couple of days instead of 11 days to England. I mean, you know, the, the, the time-space continuum was going to be shortened. And, and, but as much as anything else, you know, the old British empire that we know and love, you know, was kind of based on that pounding piston, that ability to execute industry and manufacturing and industrial technology, just think of a warship and whatever went into that warship that Britain did better than every, everybody else. This was an opportunity to do airships, to put, to populate the skies with these things, but also, and more important, it was going to be British technology up there that was doing it. So it was this grand, grand scheme. R101, the airship, the, the centerpiece of my book, 
was the attempt to prove it could be done. And, and you can understand anyway. why they want to, to reduce the time to get across that empire. You know, there's so much administrative uh, administrations that you need to get involved with and, and keep in touch with. But the interesting point there is you, you, you point out in the Britain where we're trying to build upon what other people had already done with these airships. You know, what was... What had the what had the history of airships been up until this point? How successful had they been? All right, let's see if I can give you a, a thumbnail of airships. Uh, you know, lighter than air was kind of invented back in the 18th century, um, where you, somebody could you could put a, a a balloon either filled with hydrogen or hot air, and it would do something that absolutely nothing else in the universe that anyone had ever heard of would do. In a universe governed by gravity, it would go up. And nothing else like that had ever existed. So this is pretty cool. The problem, and, and you, and there were uses for it, like uh, in the Crimean War in Europe, in the uh, Civil War in the United States, they were, uh, they were uh, balloons were useful as observation platforms and, and so forth. But the problem was, you once they went up, you they kind of went where the wind or God wanted them to go, and you couldn't steer them. Nineteenth century, the French cured this. They came up with a, they put a you know a propeller on it and a rudder. And now you could fill something with hot air hydrogen and go up there and, and steer it. And somebody did, you know, one day flew from Paris to somewhere and back and actually turned around and came back. And, and, and that was, it was interesting because the French verb to direct or to steer is diriger. And so something that you could diriger was a dirigeable, right? Dirigible. That's where the name came from. Uh, and but still, the problem was with anything that had kind of an envelope in which you had hot air or, or hydrogen that was lighter than air would make it go up. You had this real limitation of size because the, the balloon could only be so big and then it folded in on itself and it didn't work. And because it could only be so big, it could only lift so much because, you know, you think of a, of a watching recreational balloonists go up, you know, there's a. Uh, there's two people in that basket or something, or maybe three, and that's what it can lift. It can't lift a car. It can't lift a, a heavy weight. Um, and, and so limited use. So in 1900, this wonderful, marvelous guy with a magnificent walrus mustache uh, named Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, a lifelong military guy, came up with this idea for a rigid airship. Now, a rigid airship was different than a blimp and different than a balloon. The reason it was is because it was a gigantic steel structure. And and why a steel structure? Because nothing else would hold all these massive uh, uh, hydrogen-filled balloons, or sorry, not balloons, gas bags that sat inside it. And so because of his invention, you could really carry a good deal of weight up there. So when the Wright brothers, you know, were able to carry one person, he would, he could already carry 10 or 12. I mean, there was, and they were direct competitors early on. And so to, to fast forward through all the Zeppelin invents this in 1900, he flies it for the first time, a 450 foot, I think ship. Eventually over the years, this technology gets better. There's a lot of explosions and a lot of crashes and there was very, very flawed technology all the way along, but it gets better. And it gets good enough. So by World War One, Germany can do what von Zeppelin had always wanted to do, and that was not build a passenger airline, and that was not carry cargo. That was to set Europe on fire. That's what he wanted to do. He had always seen a Zeppelin. Again, that's a large, rigid airship filled with hydrogen gas bags <clears throat> as a weapon of war. 
And when, when Germany unleashed them, which they did on seven cities in Europe, particularly on against England, um, these things became the first long-range bombers. People forget this. People think of, you know, the Battle of Britain and stuff. First long-range bombers, first weapons of mass terror. For the first time, human beings ever knew or understood that they could be annihilated from above by something other than a thunderbolt. And this came in the form of these five, six hundred, seven hundred foot long Zeppelins flying by night over Paris and Bucharest and London and dropping bombs. And so all of this kind of grows out of this her- war heritage, completely dominated by German technology. And it's really in the 20s that Great Britain and, and, and America finally get onto this idea that, hey, well, the Germans had now been forbidden, of course, Treaty of Versailles said, y'all can't build that, those anymore. We're not letting you do it. Uh, and so now this was the opportunity for Great Britain and the United States to step in and go, hey, we can do the Germans one better. And, and that's sort of what, going back to my imperial airship scheme, that's kind of what it was all about. It's, you know, you can, you can really imagine that terror and fear that those people are having, you know, as you've just said, having previously only thought of a thunderbolt or a lightning bolt being the only thing that can inflict pain and terror from above. Yeah. It must have been terrifying. They're coming at night too. They're, they're, it's, the bombs are coming at you out of the night sky. You can't see them up there. I couldn't have imagined experiencing that at all. So I can't imagine what they were, they were feeling like on the ground. <laughs> Moving forward, you know, Germany's lost the war as a you know, Treaty of Versailles banned Germany from, from re- remilitarizing. How, and you've mentioned Britain and America want to take this technology on and develop it. How does the build process in Britain towards the R101 go then? Well, what happens is uh, we come out of World War One. Again, Germany's pretty much been shut down. They'll be able to go through a few loopholes here, but basically they, they can't build. So, uh, And there's been some terrible crashes after the war. And one of the, the, the themes that runs through the whole history of airships, which, by the way, is a 40-year history period, start to finish, rigid airships, is this uh, this problem of the flaws in their construction. Uh, they blew up all the time. Uh, when you think of something like R101, which was had six acres of surface area, imagine if you've ever been in a small sailboat, you see what a 20-mile-an-hour wind does to your little sail on your little sunfish. Imagine what a 50-mile-an-hour wind does to a six-acre surface area. Um, they were, in, you, in other words, you, you couldn't land them in, a storm. You couldn't land them in a wind. They get beaten, beaten to death. Anyway, there all this was problem. The Britain had a t- horrendous air crash in 1921. It was followed by other air crashes. It's still, they had this a lot of higher tolerance for risk probably than we do, but they, they, they figured they could fix these problems. And so in 1924, driven by Lord Thompson, man of empire, five generations of the Raj in India and fought in all the great theaters of empire, Lord Thompson's driving this along now, and and the idea is we're going to build these great airships, but there's going to be two airships to start this off. R101, which is going to be the so-called socialist airship because it was done by the first socialist government, first labor government, um, was going to be given everything it wanted, the maximum technology. It was like cost plus to the max. So the other airship was the capitalist airship, which was going to be given a fixed contract or Vickers was be given a fixed contract, build this thing. And these two were going to be R100 and R101 were going to demonstrate to the world, you know, how that Britain really could, in the case of R101, fly to India and back and come back. And Thompson was going to 
Hitasa was going uh, to India and back, take it in two days each way, come back, trailing clouds of glory, walk into the Imperial Conference and announce the future was here. We just proved it. We just just sailed to India and back and floating high instead of, you know, multiple stops on these noisy oil spattered aircraft, uh, airplanes. We're going to do it. We're going to float over the, you know, majestically over the oceans and come back. And so in 1924, they started building these things um, toward this dream of British domination of the sky in a new way. And, and so many delays, it's a, it's a, it's a, almost a Keystone Cops kind of tale of mismanagement and, uh, and, and folly. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and it wasn't, it isn't until October of 1930 that R101 finally flies. So I chronicle this in my book. There's a, a lot of problems that aren't addressed. A lot of problems with the basic, you know, one of the one of the basic flaws of uh, the airship, the big airship, but R101 in particular, is you have 5.5 million cubic feet of hydrogen gas held in gas bags, some of which are as big as a ten-story building, that are made from cattle intestines, lightly backed with cotton. All of this, uh, and they're protected by a, a almost a, an extremely thin layer of uh, cotton or linen that's been doped with airplane dope, but it's still, you can put your finger through it, um, wrapped around the steel structure. So you have, you know, incredibly, uh, on the one hand, the steel structure was strong, but the gas bags were incredibly weak and so was the covering. And so anyway, th- this was part of the build process that goes on for six years through all of the issues and all the problems that they that they have to to confront but but one of the things they did not do was to address the fundamental weaknesses of airships were that you know you shouldn't be flying something like that in a storm i think the the process between the r101 and the r100 definitely shows itself in how some of those issues are addressed and how they are how both those airships are moving forward you know, we're heading to India. You know, Thompson's really triumphant. He really wants to make sure this journey goes ahead. You know, what what was the the beginning of that journey like? Well, the very beginning. So this is, the the date is October fourth, nineteen thirty, and uh, R one hundred one is going to fly from uh, Cardington, which is you know near, near Bedford, um, to Karachi, which was then in India, now in Pakistan. And he was going to do it in two days with a single stop in Egypt, Ismailia, and to refuel and then continue on. So what we're looking at here in the, on the night, as the storm is gathering around them, they should never have gone. The storm is gathering around them the night of October 4th. Uh, meanwhile, there's thousands, tens of thousands of people in the, in the fields below flashing their uh you know, lights in the singing land of hope and glory. I mean, it's it's this wonderful kind of moment where this massive thing, and you got to remember, a 777-foot-long airship. I mean, no, nobody had ever seen anything like that before. And it's bigger by volume than the Titanic, just to put it into perspective, or three football pitches or whatever. But it's it's something this big, and it just has never seen. So there it is, sitting at its mast in Cardington, and the loading has begun and, and Thompson's going on and they have the sort of the cream of the British airship establishment are boarding this thing. And, and it's, it's about to, because Thompson has got a, a very bad case of uh, get there itis, as we, as we say, he needs to get 
to India and back in time for the Imperial Conference. So he can't delay this any longer. And so he gets on board and they all board and they all take off into this rising storm, which they shouldn't have done. And and so there's this kind of dramatic moment where the, you know, the crowd cheers and the ship, the air, the great airship, you know, lifts off from its mass into the night sky and the lights twinkle as it sails off toward the um, English Channel and 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 then France and it is it as it will turn out it will it will make it across the English Channel um, but not much farther it it crashes about ninety miles north of Paris um, about a seven and a half hour it's got, Lord Thompson's got about seven and a half hours to live from the moment he takes off anyway so and and, and the way I structure the book is you kind of I'm alternating chapters. So you're in the present, in the present kind of, you know, on board the ship, or, you know, which is like being on board the Lusitania, right? You're on board when you, and you know something's going to happen. And I'm not spoiling anything either here. The title of the book is The Life and Tragic Death of the World's Largest Flying Machines. No spoiler. We, we know that it's going down and alternating the, the present, which is the flight with the past, which is all this other stuff I'm talking about, Zeppelins and the the building process and all this it's really quite sad seeing that that triumphant moment for for thompson knowing what's going to happen to him uh you know only seven hours later but i, I kind of want to dive into the experience on that well, for those for those maybe slightly pleasant six hours in between uh, <laughs> what was what was it like being on this airship because you know it's it's so so big, and you're mentioning that it's the it's the socialist ship. There's been there's been no uh, limits to the expense that they're trying to put on to help this get there. What was life like for those few hours on this ship? Well, it's it's it, it, as you should say, it's a real phenomenon. And, you know, they say that a million people came to see that in the month before she left, including the Prince of Wales. I mean, everybody in 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 Great Britain was looking at this, and the thing was. And most of them through the press understood what was what it was like inside. But it was really one of the things that Thompson was selling was luxury. Um, airplane travel at that point was still very, very primitive and uncomfortable. I mean, I was saying the Zeppelins were and, and airships were crashing all the time. They were, but so were airplanes crashing all the time. And airplanes were noisy and they were dirty and they were smelly and they were oil spattered and they were... They required constant refueling and, and all these things. And so what they're going to sell with uh, R101, and really for the first time in, in, in the history of airships, was luxury. It was going to be, and, and you know, it, it's silly to say it was going to be like a Pullman car or that it was going to be like a, a, steam, a, a commercial steamship, passenger steamship, because you obviously, something that's lighter than air has to be built from, you know, light materials. But that's what they were going for, a kind of a cross between a Pullman car and like an admiral's quarters. They wanted it to look very rich. And so if you walked into the really fancy dining room that was all trimmed out in gold and 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 if you if you when you looked at it, you say, wow, those those pillars are impressive. Uh, the pillars are made out of balsa wood. The walls are made of linen. Uh, if we're in an airship here, you know, they're, we're in lighter than air. Everything has to be. So it's very, very it's luxurious looking. So you go to the passenger promenade, which had, they put these uh, cell windows, kind of like plastic sort of windows that were 
where they could sit out in the promenade and, and gaze down at the, at the, uh, these, these things didn't fly very high, only 1500 feet. So you could just see the world going by below you. You could go to the smoking lounge, which is a wonderful concept in an airship with 5.5 million cubic feet of hydrogen. Hydrogen, by the way, uh, if you've ever seen a picture of the Hindenburg's last few moments has a tendency to do that. So it's got smoking lounge. It's got a lounge. It's got, you know, they're, they're serving elegant food and wine and, you know, it's, it's, everybody's got a birth and, and R101 was, uh, as I say, not as solid as a Pullman car, but it kind of looked and felt that way. And so the, this idea of, of, it was not just air travel and you were not just kind of floating high above the earth while airplanes were banging along. You were floating high above the earth, having your Bloody Mary on the promenade fixed by the uniformed porter, you know what I mean? This, and then go have your cigar in the, in the smoking lounge afterwards. So the, the world inside there was, uh, for the passengers, very comfortable. Um, you know, for the crew, it was very much a lot, a lot, a lot of work. I mean, these, uh, flying an airship was way, way harder than flying an airplane. I, I can almost imagine how that luxury is kind of giving a reassurance to the passengers of, you know, this is, this is luxurious, therefore this is solid and, and we're going to be okay. It was. And, and, you know, Lord Thompson very famously said, you know, that, that this thing is the most, the safest conveyance he said ever in all, all this hyperbole. He said, you know, it's, it's as safe as the house he said, except for the millionth chance. That's a quote. Um, there was this idea that couldn't crash. And, and that would remind you, I think, probably of, a, of an event in British history 18 years before of the, something that couldn't sink, right? <laughs> which is the Titanic, which was also the height of luxury uh, of its day, right? As I, as I recall, anyway, I don't think anything was quite as luxurious as the Titanic. But, you know, the unsinkable boat, the uncrashable airship, um, apparently those lessons were forgotten. But the uh, R101 was an experimental technology, and it always was. And one of the great flaws in in the process, but also in Thompson's mind, was that he treated uh, an experimental prototype like an operational aircraft, and it wasn't. Um, it, it had it had barely been tried. It had never been through a a, a, a bad weather trial. It, had, it 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 was it was, you know, it was. It was like taking a, a Spitfire up in the 30s without really actually testing it out. But not only that, you know, putting the secretary of, uh, you know, the home secretary in the back with you. I mean, you, you just wouldn't do it. Um, and so there was a, a bit of that going on, too. So I, I now want to kind of touch on, you know, I don't, I don't want to forget these people, the people operating the R101. Yes. You know, the, these people are, are leading this crew. They're, they're leading these passengers towards their destination. You know who were these these people uh, and what were they like? Because I think there's some there's some interesting characters who oh, are yes. who are driving this 101. There really are um, the uh, probably principal among them is a guy named Herbert Scott. And Herbert Scott, although he wasn't officially in charge, this had been one of the management issues. Was this had been kind of fuzzed over a little bit. They, nobody was sure who really was in charge. And Scott had been given the kind of go no go call. You know. The, are we going to Egypt tonight or aren't we? And he made the disastrously wrong call to go. But, you know, I've been saying how flawed airships were, and they were, and they always were, and that's why they didn't last historically. But if you go back to 1919, again, Herbert Scott, who was on the R101, who was the technically ranking, uh, you know, guy, um, 
If you go back to 1919, it's, I have to re- kind of create this scene for you. In 1919, we're out of World War One now, right? The Germans have lost all their their zeppelins have been either given away and re- the very few that are left that haven't crashed have been given away in reparations. Um, were in this moment, and the, and the British the, the British had tried mightily throughout the war to imitate the Germans, but they just they really couldn't do it. I mean, no, not not just I mean nobody could nobody could figure out how the Germans did this, and so the way the Brits figured this out was they would go and they would study downed zeppelins and they would kind of go try to reverse engineer whatever the word is, take a down zeppelin and crawl all over it and take photographs and that combined with industrial espionage and then take it back to their workshops in, in England and, and try to come up with competing airships. And the result of that was that starting in about 1915, 1916, you suddenly had these British airships, which were, or actually probably more like 1917, that that were kind of state of the art two years before (laughs) That they were. It took them that long to engineer these things that they'd stolen from the Germans, right? And they, and uh, and there was this one of those aircraft that they had. They found themselves with at the end of the war, and uh, it was called R thirty four. And R thirty four was a knockoff, a straight steal of what the Germans called a height climber. And this gets into another story, and I won't I'm trying not to go into it too deeply here, but the height climbers came toward the end of the war and they were Germany's attempt to get altitude on the British fighters because the British fighters had figured out what happens if you shoot tracer bullets, uh, incendiary bullets into an airship at two and a half million cubic feet of hydrogen. I mean, to be brief, it's, it's really satisfying if you're the person in the British fighter plane, right? Imagine the Hindenburg spectacle that we all know, right? This happened over dozens and dozens of times during World War I, British fighter planes shooting down Zeppelins at, at a relatively high height that would then burn like the Hindenburg and fall either, usually in the countryside somewhere. And so it, it, you had this kind of technology war, and the war was who can go higher? And the Zeppelins went to 10, 12,000, 13, 14,000, the British fighter planes, which initially couldn't go that way, would higher and higher and higher. And it would get really hard on the pilots, too, because they're all unprotected. Now we go to 18,000 feet. Now we go to 20,000 feet. You know, and up there, you if you're a pilot, either an unprotected British pilot or a Zeppelin crew, you're freezing to death. All of your gauges are frozen. I mean, you're, you're, it's, 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 anyway, it's very, very difficult. So anyway, toward the end of the war, the British got hold of a height climber, like one of the state-of-the-art German height climbers. Or they, 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 they found a crash, didn't get hold of it. And they engineered their own ship. So two years later, of course, it finally comes out, and it's this ship called the R-34. And it's built. what it's built to do is go to 22,000 feet and evade German uh, British fighter planes. But the boffins over at Whitehall or wherever they were, they say, you know, we've got this airship and the war's over and we don't really know what to do with it. So, And we've got this great commander named Herbert Scott, who had been a the commander of uh, blimps, which actually did quite well in the war, smaller aircraft. But we got uh, Herbert Scott to, to captain this thing. Let's go across the Atlantic. It's a completely insane idea. The ship had no, absolutely was not built to do that. 
on any level, but they say, hey, let's, let's go do it. Let's fly it across the Atlantic. And so in, in 1919, the British R-34, this has been lost to history and it should not be, became the first east to west crossing of the Atlantic, period, by air. And the east to west, by the way, is the hard way. You know, the easy way is the way Lindbergh went. Uh, Lindbergh went eight, eight years later, mind you. Um, you had the Al- Alcock and Brown beat them by a couple of weeks and a couple of hops going over. But not only does Herbert Scott do this, and there's there's near misses, near accidents all the way over. It's a near disaster every five minutes on this thing. He gets over and then he flies it back. So he's not only the first east-west crossing of the Atlantic by air, but the first double crossing of the Atlantic. And he does it pretty quick. Uh, and he gets back and there's this great hero's welcome. If people had any idea of the heroism of that crew that it took to do that. And so Herbert Scott is like, the, at, at that moment, one of the greatest, probably the greatest aviation hero in the world. So we come into the 20s. Um, he, he, you know, he's, he's not really flying much. And the less he flies, the more he drinks. And the more he drinks, the less he flies. And he, we finally, by the time we get to the R101 takeoff launch, he's a full-blown uh, dipsomaniac alcoholic who's pretty much blotto from lunch onward. And, and I chronicle in the book that, you know, these dynamics, uh, uh, because that's what you've got. You've got this, this kind of incredible imperial moment of the launch of R101 toward England, but the guy in charge, um, as far as we can tell at that point, was probably drunk. So anyway, that's, that, that's, that's Herbert Scott. Interesting guy. We have other, we have the, the, the captain who was an, a, a, a well-known Olympic runner uh, at, who ran for Great Britain in the Olympics and uh, not an alcoholic. We, there, there's all sorts of different sort of people there. I, I won't go into all of them, but they're, they're, they are the people who flew the ship and, and uh, uh, almost all of them died and, and died horribly by fire. And that's what happened. And, and and reading about Scott and his his personal issues and his alcoholism, really, I think it kind of mirrors the the story of the R one hundred one with triumphant uh, uh, hero to to not at all really at the end. Yeah, it's a it's it, it's a tragedy on so many levels, particularly for uh, for Herbert Scott. But you know, it's it's a it's a and it's interesting the way uh, getting at what you just said there. The uh, the way the country responded to this was really something because if you, I mean, there were fifty four people on board, uh, forty eight died, which is well more than the uh, Hindenburg. Um, but okay, we just finished a war where seven hundred and fifty subjects of empire had died. Okay, so we were, I mean, the the world was used to death. So it wasn't so much perhaps the numbers of people who died. It might have been partly the way they died. It's a, it's a, it's a particularly hideous way to die. But I think there was something else to it too. There was some, some kind of uh, spark there, some sense of the towering ambition of this project, somehow that the identity of the empire and the nation was somehow caught up in it. Um, because what you had happen after the crash was just uh, unexpected, I guess. It was one of the first, world's first mass media events. You had overflow crowds. 
um, at, at Westminster and St. Paul's. Uh, you had a million people in the streets as it came through England and through as the cortege came through England, uh, through um, uh, Whitehall and, and that part of town. Uh, just this absolute out national outpouring of grief that had not been seen since the Titanic. And and there was something about it that resonated with the country. And I, I, have, I think it's it's partly, as I said, the the size of the ambition. And it's partly, I think, that these things were just so, they were just so huge. I mean, there was something big about the thing itself, too, that you could fly something 777 feet long, um, that you could even do that or try that. There was something... I don't know, it was like some, someone someone flew too high, which wasn't really what happened. But it, it, it was an ambition. It was thwarted, thwarted imperial ambition on some level. And there was a lot of, and even going back to the beginning of uh, uh, von Zeppelin in Germany, the the reason that he was able to get money uh, to do what he did was was just straight German nationalism, national pride, national feeling that, this is our magnificent technology and we're the only ones who can do it. And to some extent, this is what, this is, it, it was a sense of national pride that ruled the whole R101 project. You know, that, that, that outpour of national grief is, is really quite moving, but I think we're, we're talking about, you know, this, this tragic end. Could you, could you kind of detail just a little bit, I don't want to spoil your book obviously, but just detail a little bit for us about, how the R101 does meet its end. R101 had flaws that were inherent in all airships. One, hydrogen, extremely explosive. Uh, you know, and, and if, again, think of the Hindenburg. We've all seen that, right? That's 1937. That's seven years after uh, R101. Think of what that looked like. There were 75 of those. Okay, so this we all might think well that was the only time that happened it happened over and over and over and over again and uh, and it happened to r101 so you have in, it's inherently explosive it's you have these gas bags that are made of cattle intestines because they're impermeable and hydrogen being the lightest ele- element tends to get out wherever you put it so for some reason they couldn't figure out anything better than cattle intestines and being protected by thin drape of linen um and, and now flying into a 50 mile an hour wind or actually gusting to 70 miles an hour. And so what, what happened basically was those, they had never tested this ship in winds or weather like this. What happened as far as anyone can tell is uh, uh, we have, you know, wind breaching that linen cloth. And then we have the gas bags that are unprotected, massive loss of gas in the forward area and a dive. and then and then uh, an attempt to save the dive, and then eventually it, come, and it comes to Earth. Again, I go into much more detail in the book. Um, and in particular, from the survivor's point of view, it's really interesting to see what happens to them. One of them survives because he's in the smoking lounge drinking and smoking. It's like the joke is, yeah, he survives because he's in the asbestos line. Smoking lounge. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it eventually comes to ground. And so, and what happens is, and this has been a problem going all the way back to the earliest Zeppelins and airships, is that when one of these things comes to ground in a big wind, it just gets battered to pieces because it's so big that you can't you, you can't hold it, you can't control it. It just gets beaten to pieces. In the middle of getting beaten to pieces, there is always a spark 
And the spark then hits, in this case, five and a half million cubic feet of, uh, of hydrogen. And then you get this just absolutely gigantic fireball and, and people die by fire. At some level, I'm writing a book. Well, I'm writing a book about R101, about Lord Thompson, and about Herbert Scott, and about all the interesting things that go on here. But on another level, I'm writing a book about human folly. I mean, this had happened over and over and over. I mean, this wasn't like, oh, whoops, you know, we didn't know that was going to happen. It was inherent. And and they talked themselves into this idea that they they could come up with technology that was going to fix it, and uh, which was false from the very beginning uh, i totally see that that story of human folly i mean we've even discussed it with the the parallels between the r101 and and the titanic there is very much a, a story of lessons not being learned and lessons not being followed up from from previous attempts yeah it's uh some at some sometimes when i'm writing a book or, or any or whatever writing something i you you come to the revel revel or the realization at some point that what you thought you were writing about is not exactly what you're writing about. And I realized, no, I'm writing about human folly on an absolutely gargantuan scale. I mean, that's, that's what I'm writing about here. And, uh, and it wasn't that I want to single out the Brits here. You know, the Americans went right down, followed them right down into the bunny hole and had, had three giant airships go up. And in fact, they solved the hydrogen problem with helium. This is, you know, they said, Hey, Americans controlled all the helium in the world at that point, and they weren't sharing it with anybody. And says so we're going to put helium. So, hey, these airships are going to be safe. They have helium. Helium does not explode. Um, and uh, and you know the the two massive crashes after after R one hundred one, the Akron and the Macon in the in the United States, were of helium filled airships. But they were demonstrating the other flaws, which is that you can't, they can't deal with weather or storms and you can't land in a storm. I mean, think about it. You're up there in the air. If you're in an airplane, unless you're over water, you can, you know, theoretically land on an airstrip somewhere or a road or something like that. Or if you're in a boat, theoretically, you can find a safe harbor in a, uh, in a rigid airship. You cannot go down. And so we have this this really, I think one of the most horrific of all the airship crashes was the um, the Akron. This is 1933. This was a, the U.S. was doing exactly what the Brits did with R101. They were going to, this was going to be the biggest and the best. And this was going to you know, fix the, the flaws in the German technologies. And they were going to do this huge uh, 800 foot long helium filled airship that was, not only was it, yeah, it, it was a it was a joint venture between the Zeppelin Company, which had built all the bombers that terrorized Europe, and Goodyear, and uh, it was like the best of the American technology, the best German engineers. It was going to be great. So there's this moment where they're it's off the coast. The airship is up in the air off the coast of of New Jersey, and these uh, thunderstorms. This is March, I think. Thunderstorms approach, so the airship flees from you know, the thunderstorms, but only to find that going west now, thunderstorms in the west, and they head north, and there's thunderstorms in the north, and they spend this four hours panicked and fleeing the thunderstorms, which catch up to them at some point, because not only will, you know, wind batter these things, but up and down drafts in a thunderstorm will, you know, take you up 5,000 feet in a matter of seconds and take you right back down again, which is what started happening to it, eventually dropping it into the 
North Atlantic in uh, in March, where everybody seventy three or seventy six people died. Uh, but that was an example of okay, we got rid of this flaw, but these other flaws remain. Um, and anyway, I was saying that the Italians had trouble. The French had a reparation German ship blow up. The Americans did. I mean, Brits were not alone. The Germans, of, of, if you want to say who had, in terms of crashes and mishaps, Germans were by far in, in the lead position there. <laughs> so that's, that's a really nice like, summary of what happens to the airships afterwards. And <laughs> Now, on a slightly more positive note, Sam, on a slightly more positive <laughs> note, <laughs> I have a final fun question for you, as we do for all our guests on the History of Jackson podcast. Now, you've written on a, a, a wide variety of subjects yes. throughout your, your writing career. And I want to ask you, what subject is your favorite to write on and why? Well, um, the one I've spent the most amount of time on was the American Civil War. Um, and that to me, in some ways, I went into it thinking, well, you know, almost any American writer worth his salt. I mean, at some point you have to at least think about the Civil War. It's it's the defining event in our country's history. And it still defines us every day. Gabby, you read the New York Times or whatever every day. We're, we're still fighting some version of that war. And uh, uh, particularly now, I think, on the subject of race. But so but anyway, I, you know, I spent like four years, I think, on a biography of Stonewall Jackson, the famous Confederate commander. And then I spent another, I guess, probably three years on a book about the final year of the Civil War. Um, the first was called Rebel Yell. The second was called Hymns of the Republic. And I, I, I honestly can't think of a more compelling subject than the American Civil War. It is, it is almost infinite in where you can go with it, but it's uh, in, in in the person of someone like Jackson, who I you know I, I I'm a Yankee from Connecticut, so I'm choosing one of those bad old Confederates from way down south. I live in Texas now, but uh, you know it, it, there's really nothing like it. Um, but uh, anyway, I I've been a journalist for most of my career, and and journalists are. I guess famous for having the attention span of of gnats. Um, Partly it's because, you know, if you're a journalist, you're going from story to story, right? And you do your story and then it ends up at the bottom of somebody's birdcage and then you go on to your next story. And, and that's part of the fun of it. And so, and, and for me, I, I would never have wanted to be, you know, like a Chaucer specialist at University of Oklahoma for 40 years. I mean that, you know, I'm sure the Chaucer specialist knows everything about Chaucer, but I, I always needed more and different ideas. So, which is why I bet. Right. Why I have written about American football and and these crazy British airships. No, I completely understand the need for variety. <laughs> I mean, I've I had one year of Chaucer, and I think that was my fill, <laughs> <laughs> well and truly. So I think that's a that's a really lovely answer. Now, but you on, have, but you, but in your life though, you have in your studies of totalitarianism, and you, you could within that framework, you can go to so many different places. I mean. Uh, it, in the 20th century alone, but I mean, you you can go, you can span the globe within that framework, and uh, and I think that you 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 have a wide range too uh, field to play on. Oh yeah, and I think that's the, I think that's one of the best parts of being a historian uh, and of different types of histories is you get to explore it. Like looking at you know you get to look at American football, 
you know, I, I sometimes look at totalitarian soccer, football. You know, it's I think the the limitless possibilities of being a specialist in an area in history is is probably one of the best thing best things about being a historian. But obviously, our listeners are going to want to go away and and, and grab a copy of your current book, His Majesty's Airship. Where can they find a copy? Where can they grab themselves a copy? To, to so it, it was published. It was officially published by One World. It's a British publisher. So I have a different publisher in the UK than I do in in the United States. Um, at One World, a, a great publisher, and it was published on October second officially. And so it's it's everywhere you're going to find that sort of book. I mean, not only obviously Amazon and and those kinds of you know the online. Which increasingly it seems the way people buy books, but um, uh, you know somebody just sent me a photograph of it in a bookstore in London, so it's it, it it's out there. I can't promise that it's everywhere, but it's out there. I saw it on the shelf of my local bookshop, so Waterstones. I know it's there. So <laughs> yeah, so uh, let's let's hope and uh, and I'll be coming over, and I'm really looking forward to this. I had such a fun time. So I went to uh, I went to uh, England to research the book finally after having waited for a while because of COVID. And I ended up in queue at the National Archives, which is great, you know, where they have, as they say, you know, uh, King Arthur's pipe and slippers and Robin Hood's tights. They're all there, you know, at, in queue and uh, had, a, had, a, had a great time. And I, I staying in Richmond, this nice little town. And I tell people, I say, well, you know, I'm staying in this little town called Richmond. You probably never heard of. And they go like, dude, Ted Lasso, you know, I, I hadn't seen Ted Lasso at that point. Anyway, that's where Ted's from. But uh, the but anyway, I'm going oh, in March. I'll be at the Oxford uh, Literature Festival, actually speaking about this subject. So I'm really looking forward to coming back. Well, that was actually going to be one of my next questions. Actually, is where can people interact with you and, and find out more about I, your work right online? Now, <laughs> there may be there. Uh, you you can go to my website at scguin scgwynne.com where this stuff will be um but yeah i'll be at the oxford uh, is it literature or literary festival whichever it is anyway in march uh speaking there i'll be there and i'll probably be because i'm coming over for that i'll probably do other things uh, in fact i almost certainly my publicists there are having me do other things which i don't know about but which i will put on the website so um, well, I'll make sure there's a link for your website in the description below for everyone to have a look well, good. at. Th thank you, Jack. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Sam. I really appreciate it. All right. It was an honor and a privilege to talk to you. Oh, it was absolutely the same for me as well. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to this latest episode of the History with Jackson podcast. In this episode, we spoke to Essie Gwynn or Sam all about the R101 from his book, His Majesty's Airship. Now, I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Sam was an awesome guest and you can go and check out his work and, and buy a copy of his book from the description below. And if you did enjoy this episode, please do consider supporting History Jackson through History Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts or the Buy Me A Coffee profile in the description below. Without wasting your time any further, please do look out for the episode that's coming out next week, which is also another really exciting and entertaining and educating episode. I'll see you all then.